0: Welcome to our TMIT High Performer webinar for November sixteenth, 2023, entitled The Five Rights of Pain Care. I'm Dr. Charles Denham, and I will be your host today. This is our 210th webinar, and we are so blessed to uh, be able to uh, reach out to all of you and cover this very, very important topic. We'd like to thank you for joining us uh, in our podcast, as well as the live session today and our video. We'll start off with a couple of videotapes that will allow us to put a context to the five rights of pain care. The first is a New York Times uh, video and article regarding the opioid crisis.
1: Even just sitting here right now, I can feel in the right side of my spine right now I'm having a really bad spasm. And it feels just like it like you're taking it, stretching and it's gonna break at any moment. God, it, it feels like a Charlie horse
2: in your back. That's the only thing I can figure. It hurts really bad. This is what it feels like to live in constant agonizing pain.
3: It's literally like radioactive termites are chewing your goddamn bones. It's like last stage labor pains.
4: The way to I describe it is you're being tortured. Going like down. putting a your fork throat 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 in a socket and getting my shocked. My face, my chest. Pain pain you live all day every day, day with that torture
3: when like it's scraping your tissues off your bones.
2: Around 17 million Americans live with debilitating chronic pain. The relief for their suffering actually exists, but some doctors are refusing to prescribe it.
5: He looked me in the face and he
2: said, I will not give you any medications. If you want drugs, you
5: can go get them on the street like everyone else. Get out of my emergency room.
2: This is a story about unintended consequences and how they ruin lives. You see, the relief for these people's pain, powerful opioids. In the 90s, doctors began handing them out like candy, triggering a heartbreaking crisis. Opioids are now the biggest drug epidemic in American history.
6: Overdoses have claimed half a million lives since 1999.
2: Today, opioids like fentanyl and oxycodone are dirty words. But for chronic pain sufferers like Laura, they're life-changing. Fentanyl is a drug that
1: is very good at managing pain. The day when they prescribed that, it changed everything for me.
7: I was able to run on a treadmill, exercise, go
5: shopping, do volunteer projects with my church. I could walk on the beach and stand in the water without wanting to cry from the pain my body was in.
1: I was able to work full time, raise my kids full time, multitask. I was the queen of multitasking. And then they took it away.
0: My administration's working with communities to reduce overdose deaths, including with medication. We
2: will defeat this opioid epidemic. In 2016, in the rush to fix the opioid crisis, the CDC advised doctors and pharmacists to limit opioid prescriptions. They were well-intentioned recommendations that set down a maximum dosage right here. But those recommendations inspired restrictive laws across the country. The result? The pain doctor I was seeing at the
1: time, he said, you know, because of the government now, we need to take you off this medication. He said the best you can do is Tylenol and Ibuprofen. And that's when he
2: dumped me. A brief of hope last year, the CDC realised its error and updated its guidelines, but they're not filtering down to every state or physician in the confusion. Doctors are still not listening to their patients.
5: Most of the doctors
3: are nervous about being written up for over prescribing. Doctors are afraid of losing their reputations. They're worried about losing their DEA
0: number. And they will hold back um, prescribing drugs to protect themselves.
2: In a rush to fix one problem, we've created a new one. The
1: opioid crisis was a tragedy. I understand why the government took the actions it did, but I think it was way too drastic. I'm not a drug addict. It's not fair. We are not addicts. We are patients.
2: Tired of being unheard and angry at losing their quality of life, thousands are authoring petitions, lobbying federal agencies and protesting across the country, state by state. I lost my quality of life and now it's in existence.
8: I'm just so sorry that some individuals had to suffer.
2: Laura's home state of Minnesota is one of the leaders on this issue. It now offers legal protections to doctors who prescribe opioids appropriately. But even she still cannot find a doctor to prescribe the dosage she needs for comfort. I I don't get to do anything anymore.
1: All I'm doing is breathing air inside four walls. I'm not that old. I'm 66 years old.
2: The opioid crisis is a huge problem, but this isn't an either-or situation. Doctors can stop over-prescribing and make sure chronic pain patients get relief. If only they'd be brave enough to put their patients first. To all the doctors out there, I want someone to, to treat me
1: as a human being.
6: If someone is telling you, hey, something's wrong with my body, believe them.
5: How can you so blatantly ignore the Hippocratic Oath that you took to do no harm?
0: So pretty compelling uh, story. And we know that there are some real challenges and there are some abuses. And coming to the uh, abuse end of the spectrum, another video
9: judge has sentenced a former doctor and his wife for overprescribing opioid pills and defrauding insurers at their now closed North Alabama pain clinic locations. Mark Murphy and his wife Jennifer Murphy will each serve 20 years in prison after being found guilty of conspiracy to unlawfully distribute controlled substances and conspiracy to commit health care fraud. Both are each ordered to pay more than $50 million in restitution. According to testimony, the clinic provided pre-signed prescriptions to thousands thousands of patients a month. The couple also fraudulently charged insurers more than $50 million worth of unnecessary medical services. Now the Murphys closed their Alabama clinics in Decatur and Madison in early 2017. At that time, records showed Mark did not renew his medical license and left Alabama before a hearing with the state medical board over accusations he was over prescribing pills. The couple then opened a new pain management specialist office in Lewisburg, Tennessee. Federal agents raided that facility in 2018.
0: And there are new things on the house tonight. You'd see
4: people kind of like
1: walking around looking like animals when their knuckles are touching the ground. You're like, what's going on?
0: It's being called the deadliest drug threat in the U.S.
10: Everybody was dying. Everybody just started like just dying.
0: A lethal combination. Animal sedatives laced into street drugs. Close to 50% of uh, our overdoses have alzheimer's. Turning users into the walking dead. Trank puts you straight to sleep. There's nothing like heroin and it destroys your body. It's the drug itself which is causing necrosis, it's causing the skin to die. Now, It's infiltrating our area. Have you heard of any Trank being in the dope in New York City? Absolutely, yeah. Xylazine is dangerous, is deadly, it is here.
10: This just happened to be a one-time thing for her.
0: So we have a number of new agents that are now uh, invading our system. And uh, this veterinary drug, uh, xylazine, street name Trank, is not only causing an enormous number of deaths, but it's also refractory to Narcan, which is, which is critical. And so now in our MedTAC, bystander rescue care program, we're having to teach people if they are to encounter somebody who may have an opioid overdose and does not respond to Narcan, you're gonna to have to provide rescue breaths to those individuals. Um, Another clip that uh, is, uh, I think, important is this one.
6: Fentanyl is a highly potent opioid. It's at least 50 times more potent than heroin. People are being exposed to fentanyl without knowing it, and because it's so highly potent, people are dying at unprecedented rates. What's happened in the United States is fentanyl has entered into all these different parts of our drug supply, including the heroin supply. Cocaine, for example, have increasingly been tainted with fentanyl pills that are sold on the street that might look like regular prescription pills are very often fake counterfeit pills that have been made with fentanyl in them someone experiencing an overdose uh, will have this decrease in breathing might lose consciousness might start to turn blue or pale and within a few minutes can die Can is sprayed up the nose um, which is very easy for people to administer it's safe it's effective there's virtually no downside to doing so it's a critical tool that i encourage everybody to carry with them to have in their homes so that they can act quickly if they need to from 2019 to 2021 overdose deaths among 10 to 19 year olds in the united states more than double um, in pediatrics we're not used to our young healthy patients um uh suddenly dying from things like overdoses but it's increasingly become a reality for so many of us who practice right now i have had patients die i've had patients whose family members have died and all of these people are children brothers sisters moms dads family members um, and they're all loved and these deaths are often unexpected and tragic
0: so we all have been talking about fentanyl even though even uh president biden last night addressed it in discussing the precursors and the fentanyl that's coming from China and going to Mexico. And the precursors uh, need to be stopped because they are being assembled then into fentanyl. However, we're also finding, and because I'm mentoring a number of youth and working with high school and college students, that it's even creeped into the vaping Uh, issue, the the vaping mechanism, and it's important for us to let all of our family members know, although we're going to be covering the five rights of pain management and get there there in just a moment, uh, it's important that we recognize that this issue is penetrating our high schools, uh, our young people, uh, and they're at enormous risk, and there's really very little uh, public health information that's getting to them.
4: Fox 35 investigates fentanyl-laced vape pins. Some of the liquid in the cartridges you can buy to fill up your vape could actually have a deadly drug inside of them.
9: And as we know, vaping is really popular with young adults. Fox 35's Valerie Boyd hears from a woman whose son fell into a coma after vaping.
5: Smoke shop owners are on alert and looking for answers after hearing about a warning regarding black market vaping products that could be laced with fentanyl. These vaping products look harmless, but according to the Florida Retail Federation, they're from the black market and considered dangerous and illegal. CEO Scott Shelley explains why.
11: It's a great uh, threat to our youth, and these are, are products that have not undergone any sort of FDA scrutiny, uh, no testing, and, and really no safety mechanism.
5: Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody is concerned, too. Remember, any substance sold on the black market could contain fentanyl. It's in counterfeit pills, cocaine, meth, and possibly even in illicit vaping pods. Investigators say a Georgia teenager was hospitalized after vaping from a tainted product. Our affiliate Fox 5 in Atlanta talked to his mother. That's
1: when I called 911, and that's when they found the vape inside of his underwear.
5: Linda Amos says her 13-year-old son, Zachary, had a stroke and ended up in a coma after he was pressured to use a fentanyl-laced vape.
1: But He still has no movement in his left arm. It's gonna take a long time, and a lot of therapy brandon priello of
5: vivo vape smoke shop in orlando was concerned to see brands he has carried in his store listed in the fda's warning about black market vaping products this whole thing that we just showed you pretty surprising
4: it's very surprising and it's very concerning too for the public
5: he says he plans to ask his vendors for more information about the product
4: more authentication for the devices to be honest we don't want retailers purchasing and reselling illicit product.
5: Shally says Florida is being targeted more than any other state.
4: You're seeing about
11: $363 million in product, which is 20% over anywhere else in the nation.
5: And Shally says he's working with legislators to figure out how to curb the use of vaping among young people. Reporting in Azalea Park, Valerie Boy, Fox 35 News.
0: So we thought that these were topics that were really important that we bring up as we talk about pain management. Now for just our logistical issues, for those of you that are on live or on for our extended sessions, and we'll have more content than just the 90 minutes that we provide for continuing medical education and CEU credits for nurses, uh, you may go to our website at www safetyleaders.org and now you can click up in the upper right hand quadrant of the website to be able to go to the information in the future you can go to our web webinar menu and you'll be able to go to the page to download the the slides Uh, for those of you on the podcast you may do so and you may also watch extended versions of the videotapes that we are playing today So Care University is our learning management system and our methodology is really to develop a community of practice. That's a group of organizations or individuals that wanna learn together. And then what we do is we develop course R&D. We do the research and development of the content with that learning management system. And then what we do is develop competency testing and R&D, if we can, to be able to verify that the information, the knowledge and skills that we are providing uh, can be tested and uh, for those that want to get a certificate for higher education or for their own research uh, or for their licensure. And then we undertake certification and incentive R and D as well. And we work very closely with the American College of Surgeons Stop the Bleed Program, the American Heart Association, um, and we are really enjoying our last year with the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, who we're working with on our programs. So for our pain and opioid crisis series, we have a number of speakers that uh, you'll be introduced to. Today, Dr. Gladstone McDowell is a, a urologist, a urologic oncologist, anesthesiologist, and has been an integrative pain management doctor for some time. Vicki King is the assistant has been the assistant police chief at the University of Texas Health Science Center and MD Anderson, recently retired and working very closely with us. Chief Bill Adcox, who you'll be hearing from later today, from his perspective as a security leader in law enforcement, is the chief of police for the University of Texas Health, Health Science Center and the chief security officer for the MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Gregory Boats is is dual faculty both at Stanford Medical Center as a full adjunct professor at the uh, Stanford School of Medicine as well as University of Texas in anesthesia and critical care at MD Anderson. John Nance is a best-selling author and safety leader who we work very closely with. who's both a JD as well as a safety leader and uh, an expert in, in both aviation and in healthcare. And Randy Steiner, who is the emergency response leader for the University of California, Irvine. And we're working very closely with the University of California and University of Texas, multiple campuses. Just so you know, this is we're this is coming in on the end of our current 2023 workplace violence and fraud series where we've covered a number of topics which I won't go into today and they're listed on the slides and we have additional speakers that we've had um, who have worked with us on that topic as well. So we never really start a program without having the voice of the patient or voice of the family in patient safety and quality. And we've expanded our program to higher education uh, and schools K through 12. Jennifer Dingman is the founder of Pulse, a focused patient safety program. Um, Uh, uh, organization. She's been a speaker with us for many years. She's been on federal task forces and programs, and she worked with us as we established the National Quality Forum Safe Practices as a spokesperson for patient-centered care and uh, patient-centered concepts. And we'll hear from Jenny as we open.
10: Thank you, Dr. Denham, for your kind introduction. I'd like to welcome everyone to today's program about opioids and pain management. Thank you so much for being here. I'm very excited about everything that's going to be taught to us today. Please share the recording with your colleagues, friends, and family. And I'll hand it back to you, Dr. Denham
0: we're just so privileged to have uh, Jenny to be uh, so dedicated. We on our slides for the podcast, we do have the handles for uh X for Instagram and Facebook and we just for those of you that are new to us Um, We just will review our purpose, mission, and values briefly. Our purpose is that we will measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. Our mission is to accelerate performance solutions that save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve. Our eye care values, which we've learned are so vital to an organization through Ann Rhodes, one of our longtime partners and uh, experts in the HR area, uh, was formerly the head of HR for Southwest Airlines, a co-founder of JetBlue, and has served many public and private companies to help them understand how core values can impact the behaviors of those that serve. And so ours spell I care, integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. I'm sure we fail daily, but we try daily to live up to them. And none of our speakers today or for our extended session uh, have uh, any uh, financial disclosures uh, to be able to um, address or uh, submit. And TMIT Global, our high performer webinar series, has been entirely funded by private family philanthropy. No direct, indirect, or affiliated financial support has ever been or ever will be provided by healthcare, pharmaceutical, or device companies. Um, We want to draw your attention to the fact that much of our work over the last four or five years throughout the COVID crisis has really been focused on uh, what we call uh, the the five R's, which are the responses to the threats that can challenge uh, our consumers, our caregivers, our families. Uh, And the five R's are readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience. We undertook a a 1,000 workers study of essential critical workers starting in March of 2020, and that's expanded to a much bigger uh, audience. Um, And we continue to study um, the areas that in safety and quality that pertain to uh, the impact of families using this 5R framework. Now uh, we, for those of you that are new to us, and we'll just cover this very briefly, um, we we're working in the area of patient safety and quality for many years. Uh, we have a network of leaders from 3,100 hospitals and 3,000 communities, and we've um, accumulated 500 subject matter experts. Uh, that is a kind of a renewing pool. Many are become are re- being retire- are being retiring, um, and many are being added to the, the ranks, and it's about a steady state of 500 subject matter experts. And our anniversary in July will be our 40th anniversary in, sur- in service. In our areas of patient safety and quality and in workplace violence and insider threats, uh, we've covered a number of topics which we won't cover today, but we want to remind our audiences to go back and watch Um, the last six or seven webinars have been focused on a number of these areas, but there can be no more important threat than what we're experiencing today through the opioid crisis and also the crisis of care of uh, doctors and organizations being fearful of adequately treating pain. So um, we underst- uh, we have been undertaking a community of practice and leading a community of practice called our Emerging Threats Community of Practice launched prior to the COVID crisis, both visible and invisible areas. And there are about 30 that keep our leaders up at night. What are they? Well, they, they consist of a number of different threats, including cybersecurity and a number of other issues, but drug diversion and the impact of uh, medications uh, and the impact on harm to patients, families, uh, and their communities is absolutely enormous. And for those that are on the podcast, I have a slide where we kind of depict um, the fact that you've got inside threats and you've got outside threats. And one of the major insider threats are drug diversion And uh, our impaired caregivers. And so, if we think about, well, what are the insider threats? It's probably two thirds of the 30 topical areas, which we won't cover today. And when we think about the drug related harm, um, it's still a pretty major group workplace violence, active shooter events domestic terrorism, violent acts against leadership, intentional harm of patients, employee and patient fraud, uh, academic fraud, I mentioned drug diversion, financial harm to patients, defamation, prevention of death or severe injury, we know uh, failure to rescue is a critical issue, unintentional patient harm, burnout, and which frequently is associated with drug dependency, uh, and they all impact the brand of the organizations. So back in 2021, we covered the emerging threats of fraud. And why is fraud so important? Well, it turns out that the medication issue and care management and pain management um, it really overlaps with uh, doctors, pharmacists, hospitals, insurers, and this issue of drug diversion um, is generated by the misuse of medications. And so we uh, we cover those, uh, those topics. And so uh, as we look at those, those areas. Um, in the law, fraud is intentional deception to uh, secure unfair, or unlawful gain, or deprive a victim of a legal right. And we find when uh, medications are either abused or not used properly, or when there's fraud, there's both civil, there's civil law that can be violated as well as criminal law. And so we will be digging deeper into this as we do a, as we lead an updated program on drug diversion and the problem within our organizations. But we really couldn't cover those topics today without really covering pain management. And the other thing, you know, anytime we talk about pain management, it's really important to think about opioid, the opioid crisis, and when we think about that, we have to think about, well, failure to rescue. And this article came out this morning, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, this came out uh, here uh, this last month, but um, it was, uh, it popped up on the Apple grid. news grid this morning uh, regarding how long our waiting time is, especially in rural uh, areas where it might be as long as an hour. And so when we come across somebody that is having an opioid overdose, either because they were properly treated with pain management and confused their pills and and, and are suffering an overdose of a medication that was prescribed for them, or this huge number of people that are, are uh, either uh, abusing prescription meds, getting a counterfeit med that has uh, fentanyl in it uh, or some other substance in it, or vaping, uh, we all really need to be aware of this critical issue. Now, uh, in, the Pain, in the Pain News Network, uh, an article came out uh, addressing the lack of education fueling the overdose crisis. And so if for those of you that are on the podcast, if we look at overdose deaths from 2000 to 2021 um, and uh, 2018 to 2021, we're finding that those without college uh, are, are much much higher probability of having uh, an overdose death. And we know that, uh, and we think that our health literacy in America is sixth grade education, uh, but it may be dropping and we really haven't seen anything to support uh, the, it being any more improved. Now, when we also talk about college, uh, and we've been studying and working with a number of universities and colleges, and we look at The 2020 CDC data, and we compare it to the 2016 data. uh, For those on the podcast, you're listening to the audio program. The ages from 25 to 64, opioid overdose is far and away the unintentional death leader in terms of generating uh, death, and that's unintentional. Those are not suicides. And then when you add suicides, where people are using opioids, it's staggering, and so it's the number two cause of death for those who are in, the, in the college students, um, we have a, a graphic uh, that we're showing our audience today um, that uh, opioid overdose is the number two leading cause of death in our college students and number one for staff and faculty of our universities, so it's a major problem. So in August of 2023, we led a webinar addressing the the battling failure to rescue the safety of our rising freshmen high school freshmen and college freshmen. And we addressed the bystander rescue care focus areas that we have been working on since 2015, including cardiac arrests, choking and drowning, opioid overdoses right up there at the top, anaphylaxis, major trauma, infection care, transportation accidents, not traffic, but those in in parking lots, and the impact of, uh, of bullying. And when we look at those and we look at opioid um, poisoning deaths, the 293 overdose deaths um, are enormous. And so we could save as, uh, as many as 11 lives every hour if people knew what to do with opioid overdose and had the proper uh, Narcan and CPR and rescue capabilities. So the problem is failure to rescue when we look at opioid overdose, and the solution is bystander rescue care. And we are are just constantly championing the cause of three minutes from drop to shock when someone has um, a sudden cardiac arrest, three minutes from gunshot to stop the bleed, and three minutes from the cessation of breathing from an opioid overdose, to being able to get Narcan to um, the the, uh, victim and get rescue breaths on board. And as we mentioned earlier in our introduction, uh, trank or Xylazine, which is now finding its way into everything from cocaine to uh, counterfeit pills to to marijuana to uh, vaping uh, devices, uh, we need to understand that we need to perform rescue breaths. There may be a pulse, but if there's no breathing and we know that someone has had this problem, we have to be aware of that. So we're now at, uh, at 31 minutes after the hour. We're right on time. Now let's dig, take a, a deeper dive into the five rights of, uh, of uh, pain care. And uh, what we'll do is, um, is cover these five rights and then have Dr. Gladstone McDowell, a pain management expert, take us through them. So we developed the five rights of pain care as early as 2015. The right tests. Caregivers and patients need to make sure that the right tests are undertaken to make the right diagnosis of the sources of pain. The right diagnosis. Pain often has causes requiring a thoughtful approach to understanding the pain generators in order to undertake the right treatment. Right treatment. Optimal pain relief often requires an integrated strategy of multiple tactics. The right combination with a team-based approach has enormous potential. The right monitoring. When caregivers, patients, and families record the impact of pain care, the tactics can be fine-tuned to the patient and an integrated approach can be taken. Right prevention. Certain pain scenarios are related to what patients are doing in their daily lives. For instance, back pain can be impacted by safer ways of doing work, and exercise can strengthen muscular support and reduction of pain generation. Dr. McDowell has provided a fall 2023 update on the five rights of pain management as a supplement to his prior presentations. He is a urologist, a urologic oncologist, anesthesiologist, and pain management doctor who is a leader in integrated pain management. So Dr. McDowell, in 2023, what's important about the right tests?
12: So the challenge that we have in 2023 is Often if we want to obtain a test, the insurance companies will say, before you can get an MRI, your patient has to try physical therapy. And sometimes patients cannot tolerate physical therapy, but they have to pay a copay, they have to pursue physical therapy for weeks or months before you can get an MRI to substantiate that you suspect there's a perniated disc or a particular fracture, which is, which is a problem. Um, laboratory testing, uh, is not a problem. Urinary drug screening testing does not appear to be a problem, but we take all of those tests to support our diagnosis and to help develop a treatment plan.
0: So it's important that patients really understand cost and the financial part in 2023. Your statement?
12: It is, yeah, very important. Very important that that patients um, take some some ownership in trying to decide. You know, I need to check my insurance plan to see what tests are covered. I need to participate in the authorization
0: process along with the office. Dr. McDowell, what's new about the right diagnosis in 2023?
12: Well, you know, (laughs) there's nothing really new about the right diagnosis, but I think in 2023, it's much more important to make sure that you have the right diagnosis before making treatment decisions because treatments have become more expensive insurance challenges have become greater Uh, delays for authorization additional info have become greater and so it's important for us to to make the right diagnosis early on
0: in terms of the right treatment what's new what should we know about
12: so depending upon what we are are treating there there are a lot of new therapies out there you know in in the field of, of pain most of us have moved away from, from opioids, what people call narcotics. We tend to use non-opioid treatments, but there are a lot of new therapies. There are there are newer uh, targeted medicines for it. Uh, we've been utilizing a lot more of the physical modalities, physical therapy, acupuncture, cupping. Um, you know, they, they, there's a, a, a great position for Um, for PRP, patient, um, a platelet-rich plasma. Um, There are exosomes that can be appropriate for for some patients. Uh, CBD has become a a really important tool for us. Now we need to separate out CBD and the benefits of CBD from the products that contain higher dose THC with some CBD in it. And sometimes that can be difficult because Patients go to dispensaries and the, the dispensaries tend to recommend products that perhaps they have a higher profit margin on. We have difficulties with interactions uh, for products that have too much THC and not enough CBD. So I think having the right CBD formulation can be really important. So in
0: 2023, what about right monitoring? Anything new there?
12: So we tend to utilize pain diaries um there are there are apps that are new and uh there are some very good apps that that patients can utilize um i tend to really recommend the use of the apple watch or google watch fitbits thing things like that so we can monitor activity we can monitor heart rate um, uh, arrhythmia issues so i think all of those things contribute there's some newer things on the horizon that we are looking forward to, and perhaps we can talk more about that another time.
0: What about the right prevention? You have helped us really understand pain generators and why it's so important to understand how to prevent the pain from coming back and what behavior changes are necessary. Do you wanna address that?
12: Yeah, so I I think the important thing is to look at lifestyle. So lifestyle changes, um, movement, movement is very important. I like my patients to do the therapy. I like them to do yoga, swimming, Pilates. I mean, walking, walking is an excellent therapy. So all of those things can can prevent, but we also uh, do a lot with injury prevention. So let's look at what caused the initial injury. Let's try to prevent that. Even though you may want to go back to snowboarding or you may want to go back to doing moguls, you've had herniated disc, you've had surgery, we burn nerves, we put a stimulator in, we put a pump in. Let's do some things that are that you can remain active but not re-injure yourself. Um, also, sleep. Sleep is, is very important. Uh, we look at patients' vitamin D, and I think if we supplement the vitamin D, we supplement things like magnesium. Um, hormone replacement therapy can be important for a lot of patients. I think all of those things can help to prevent pain coming back, to keep patients uh, more, more active and improve function.
0: Dr. McDowell, opioids are one of the leading causes of drug <laughs> adverse events. Tell us about the opioid crisis in 2023.
12: Well, the opioid crisis has been with us since the early 2000s. You know, there's been a lot of, of negative press um, about opioids, the companies that led us down the wrong path for opioids have been punished somewhat. Opioids are still used quite a bit because it's easy to to prescribe opioids. It's cheap. A lot of physicians just tend to default to that because you don't have to really think about what the problem is. I think this is is an issue. I think we should identify the pain generator. We should focus on non-opioid options to include the plethora of excellent non-opioid medicines that we have that we can use in, in an in an adjunctive manner. Um, some of the the wellness therapies out there. Uh, so I think I think opioids are on the decline, but they're on the decline in specialty care. I think in primary care, it's still very easy for them to prescribe opioids. Um, and Insurance companies will pay for opioids because they're cheap. They often don't want to cover some of the more, uh, the pharmaceutical products that tend to be a little bit more expensive. And it's interesting back in 2006 or seven, I I was on a panel and I, I raised the alarm about the fact that it was easier for patients to obtain short acting opioids because of financial disincentives from the insurance companies. So some of the pharmaceutical long-acting agents that had less of a a street value and potentially less uh, abuse potential were were more expensive. And so patients couldn't get them. We had a hard time uh, getting those paid for. And I was very concerned about the fact that people were being pushed to Short-acting opioids, which contributed and expanded the opioid crisis, but again, I think I was ahead of the curve. Many people on the panel looked at me very skeptically, wondering why was I, you know, rocking the boat, potentially upsetting insurance companies. But I, I, I really felt that there was an issue that somebody needed to pay attention to. Unfortunately, perhaps my voice was just not loud enough, but. We are where we are now, and I think that um, I think the, the the government, the regulatory agencies, patient advocacy groups, insurance companies um, are really catching on and trying to reduce our our dependence, our love for short acting short acting opioids, and the damage that it can cause. Dr.
0: McGowan, you've been a champion for integrated pain management for years. Can you frame that for what that is?
12: Yeah I think um, early on in my career I, I realized that uh, multimodal therapy w- was important. I wanted to look at some of the um, the non-traditional treatment plans. I wanted to look at things like yoga, exercise, working with the, the right chiropractic partners. Um, improved sleep, uh, looking at hormone issues and helping to correct some of of those and integrating those with the traditional medical and surgical things that that we do. And I found it to be very satisfying. My patients have really been attracted to that. And I think that has helped to differentiate us from some other practitioners. And I'm very pleased to see that medicine is moving Uh, much more towards the integrated care model. Mind-body connection, mind-body-spirit connection is very important, and I think we need to support that.
0: Dr. McDowell, the cannabis industry, why is it so important to have solid scientific evidence for treatments?
12: So the cannabis industry currently is the Wild West. I mean, there's lots of money being made. What we really need is well-designed studies that are carried out that will provide results that the medical community will actually accept and and respect, and this will help to move this into the mainstream and provide benefit for our patients and our communities.
0: So, Dr. McDowell did a fabulous job covering the the kind of an update of 2023. We took a portion of his prior presentation on pain management, and we want you to listen to and to see that as it applies to some of the specifics. But we wanted to start off
11: with the update. I've had the pleasure of working with the TMIT group for a long period of time. I'd like to move to the slide that describes Five rights of pain care. As you can see, as we move through this in a clockwise manner, we're discussing the right tests, the right diagnosis, the right treatment, the right monitoring, and the right prevention. This is a very good reconciling structure when we sit and decide how to evaluate, make decisions, and uh, perform treatment for our patients. I'd like to break this down by going to the next slide. Which shows the right tests. So caregivers and patients need to make sure that the right tests are undertaken to make the right diagnosis of the sources of pain. What we know is that pain is a subjective complaint, and pain is may be influenced by age, gender, culture. You know, some patients may have better communication or language skills than others. Previous experience anxiety and very importantly, genetics uh, really affects this. And so, when we sit and think about the right test, we need to think well: what what is the pain generator for this patient? Most important thing is a history and physical, but good supporting uh, info is obtaining imaging, and this can be in the form of plain X-rays, MRI with or without contrast. With contrast, if you're dealing with somebody with a potential cancer diagnosis or somebody who has had a spine surgery, uh, CAT scans, ultrasounds, bone scans, uh, and sometimes a combination of these may be necessary. We also like to draw lab work because I find it very important to identify whether somebody is deficient in vitamin D. We'd like to know about your renal and hepatic function, because we can make decisions upon uh, what types of medicines to treat people with. And then very important, particularly in this day and age, we look at the urine drug screen, but we also want to look at the pharmacogenomics, because there's several ways that genetics can influence the amylogemic response. Uh, there's drug metabolism, enzymes, there are drug transporters, some opioids or other pain medicines may have receptors that we need to, to be be cognizant of, and then there are structures involved in the perception and processing of pain, and pharmacogenomics can sometimes help us when we're making decisions about this. We move to the next slide, which talks about the right diagnosis. And again, we, we need to really look at this in a very thoughtful manner. So pain has causes requiring a thoughtful approach to understanding the pain generator in order to undertake the right treatment. But I think back to my fellowship at that point in time, we were focused on the right diagnosis. We we use medicines that would treat a global pain, um, a, a global pain type. And often we found we, we to the new receptor here because we thought that, well, opioids are good. There's no seeding effect for opioids. And we now know that um, this was perhaps um, a, um, We had inadequate information here. We were making decisions based upon um, inadequate data. And now we'd like to find the pain generator so that we can select the correct treatment for patients and utilize it at the right time. We go to the next slide, which discusses the right treatment. So optimal pain relief often requires an integrated strategy of multiple tactics. So the right combination with a team-based approach has enormous potential. So I, as a pain medicine physician, will utilize comprehensive Medicaid, medical management, and that's non-opioids, or uh, properly selected opioids at correct doses, utilized for the right diagnosis at the right time. But we also use um, physical therapy, acupuncture, um, work with chiropractors, um, we, we, we believe in, in movement, movement as a a critical part in treating patients with chronic pain. Uh, We utilize things like water aerobics, yoga, um, a variety of uh, strategies like this. And so the important thing is to figure out the right treatment for patients. We no longer move to opioids as the first form of treatment or even the second. I will often say to a patient, uh, the opioids would be the very last thing that I would consider for you. We utilize, um, um, besides the comprehensive medical management and the physical therapy aspects, we use minimally invasive injection treatment, spinal cord stimulation or peripheral nerve stimulation when appropriate. Targeted drug delivery in forms of intrathecal therapy with non-opioids or opioids is perhaps an unrecognized and underappreciated aspect of, of pain control for people with advanced pain that has failed um, maximum medical therapy or properly delivered minimal interventional therapy. This can often keep people from having uh, surgery if it is not absolutely necessary. So again, the right combination with a team-based approach has enormous potential. We move to the next slide. We talk about the right monitoring. When caregivers, patients, and families record the impact of pain care, the tactics can be fine-tuned to the patient and an integrated approach can be taken. We now know that uh, in in the past, we perhaps have not monitored patients as well as necessary. What is crucial now is to obtain a baseline during drug screen on patients. I like to obtain lab work, again, a comprehensive um, uh, metabolic panel, a CBC would like to know what their vitamin D is. I will often check the testosterone and estradiol on patients. Um, so we use all of these things and then as we treat people, we would like to monitor their, their response to treatment. We'd also like to make sure that people are being compliant with the medications that we are treating them with and, um, the whole concept of, of, uh, universal precautions is really important here. So. We screen and treat everyone. We provide pain agreements and we, we hold people to these. We also hold ourselves to to performing the application that, that we have, have committed to. So I think it, it's important that monitoring can really help you to know whether you're doing the right job for the patient, but also help us to be able to to change the directions whenever we feel that we we're not progressing as we we felt that we would. And then prevention. So certain pain scenarios are related to what patients are doing in their daily lives. For instance, back pain can be impacted by safer ways of doing work. And exercise can strengthen muscular support and a reduction in pain generation. I've often found that many of my patients who have sedentary jobs, they sit in a, a very low comfortable chair and they don't get up very often. I encourage patients now to uh, to use a sit-stand desk, or perhaps to find a working station, or to get up every, every hour and move around, do stretching. I think many workplaces now have incorporated yoga and stretching into the uh, into the, the workplace uh, in an effort to, to, to prevent some of these um, neck and, and back-related injuries that people com- com- complain of. And most of these are musculoskeletal skeleton, and most of these can be prevented. We also work with physical therapy and the other consultants um, in an injury prevention mode so that I will say to patients, now that I've treated you and we've returned you to work, let's try to avoid things that got us in trouble in the first place. If you move to the next slide, um, we, we talk about some of the frequency of pain. We now know that pain is the most common thing that people present to their primary care physician um, we spend an incredible amount of money on this on, on this uh, problem in this country in terms of evaluation treatment, but also lost, lost work days and then disability payments. If we move to the next slide, if, when, when screening patients and thinking about do we have the right diagnosis, we need a baseline pain score from them. There is the numeric pain rating scale that goes from zero to 10, this is an 11 point scale. Zero being no pain, five being medium pain, 10 being the worst possible pain. we like to obtain a baseline pain score for people. If they don't speak to your language or they may be a child, there are a Wong-Baker ba- Faces scale that can be utilized for them. When we talk about the right tests, I talked about some of these before, but it's important to make sure that, that we, we, we really sit down and discuss the problem with patients and come up with a strategy to try to obtain some objective data by which to make decisions and how to um, make treatment decisions for this subjective com- complaint. And then we we want to monitor outcomes so that we can change our treatment and um, change our, our, our strategies to pay, depending upon how patients do. The slide that shows the balance of over-medication versus under-medication. You know, this this really pertains primarily to opioids. If opioids are being used, short-acting opioids should be the thing that you start with. Short-acting opioids are typically only meant to be used for acute pain. They should be used potentially for breakthrough pain. You never start somebody on a long-acting opioid. If you've started them on a short-acting opioid and the pain persists over a month and it becomes a chronic condition, you then may want to to transition to a long-acting opioid while utilizing a very limited amount of short-acting opioids for dosage finding. And then in my practice, we tend to get rid of the short-acting opioids and maintain people when necessary on longer-acting opioids. But at judicious doses, and with proper monitoring. If we move to the slide that describes the guidelines for prescribing opioids for chronic pain, you know, if you look at the CDC, the CDC um, came out with strategies and a document several years ago, and this was primarily to help um, primary care physicians decide when to initiate or continue opioids for chronic pain. Um, they commented that opioids should not be the first line um, for chronic pain. And again, I think that in in the past, people have defaulted to this because it tends to be easy and this tends to be what what patients want. But the CDC came up with guidelines to help primary care physicians. Now, importantly, this did not exclude cancer patients or patients who have terminal conditions um, from obtaining opioids. But this establishes and um, uh, gets you to measure goals for pain and to measure function when you make decisions about increasing or decreasing doses. And it helps to provide a guideline to discuss the benefits and risks and availability of non-opioid therapies with patients. The FDA came up and also supported this, this particular strategy. In looking at opioid selection, dosage duration, follow-up and, and discontinuation, As I said, use immediate release opioids when starting, recognizing that these should not be used for a long period of time and certainly not to treat chronic pain. Um, As with everything that we do in medicine, you start low and go slow. You base your changes um, on how the patient is doing. I like to see my patients, I, I like to look at them, I like to uh, examine them and look at their lab work and make decisions about when to titrate up or or down. Um, Gone are the days when we call medications in. And I think that there's actually a benefit to this because it can help us titrate in a a more safe manner. When opiates are needed for acute pain, prescribed no more than needed. I think in the past, physicians got in trouble because they prescribed large doses. And patients use a, a small amount of them, um, a small uh, dose or a small quantity, and then had medications sitting around that could be diverted or potentially abused at a later date. And again, recognizing that we do not prescribe extended-release or long-acting opioids for acute pain, so follow your patients, reevaluate them for risk or harm, reduce the dose or taper or discontinue as needed. And and this takes us back to our right monitoring. So again, by monitoring the patients, we can fine tune our tactics based upon the patient and move forward with our integrated approach. The CDC document describes assessing risk and addressing harm of opioid use. And again, this supports the use of urine drug screens as a of obtaining a baseline and then monitoring them at certain intervals. We tend to obtain a urine drug scheme at least four times a year, or perhaps more for people who are in a more high risk category. We tend to utilize all the data at our disposal to um, uh, to, to, uh, place people in a low, medium or high risk profile and then monitor them based upon that. So evaluate risk factors for opioid-related harm. Check your prescription monitoring program for high doses or multiple um, multiple prescriptions from other providers. And then utilize your urine drug testing to identify whether the patient is taking the substances that you have prescribed or whether they are are utilizing undisclosed medications or perhaps illicit, illicit substances. Very important, you would like to avoid the concurrent um, use of benzodiazepines with opioids. Um, uh, greater than 30% of overdoses involving opioids also involve benzodiazepines. You know, benzos tend to work to calm or sedate patients by raising the level of the inhibitor and neurotransmitter GABA in, in the brain. The problem is is that many con- common benzodiazepines, including Diazepam, which is Valium, or Xanax, or Clonazepam, have been used for a long period of time, and um, they have not been monitored. Now it's estimated that um, 30% of these overdoses involve benzodiazepines, and we 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 do not prescribe benzodiazepines with opioids if at all possible. Recognize that Zolpidem, which is Ambien, is now a street drug. It goes by a variety of, of, of different names, but it's estimated that a half million people are abusing ambient hair and, the, and, and other sedatives. Um, Arrange treatment for opioid disorder if need be. And um, this is something that we certainly hope we will, we will see better support from in, um, in terms of uh, payment for treatment plans. In monitoring, we know that people who are on opioids become tolerant to most of the effects of it, except for constipation, and you need to be proactive in in treating them. But again, if you look at short-acting opioids, you see that there are high doses, and then the dosage drops, but you have this picket fence phenomenon. We'd like to pick a a appropriate medication, and if if people need an opioid, to find a long acting opioid that will remain within that therapeutic window, giving us a proper balance of safety and efficacy. Um, in terms of a checklist on the next slide for prescribing opioids for chronic pain, these are some of the things that we consider when looking at long-term opioid therapy. And you know, you you, you have to see the patient, you have to examine the patient, you have to put together all the data that you have accumulated then make make the decision about whether a patient is appropriate for opioids. Um, Set realistic goals for pain and function based upon their death diagnosis. I like to pick at least two goals that we we want to achieve and then try to hit those and then perhaps change the the goal as people uh, have improved function. And then I need to set criteria for stopping or continuing opioids um uh and and again it's hard to do this unless you you see the person on a frequent interval so we we see patients who are on opioids monthly we reassess them at each return visit we just don't write a prescription Uh, in many states there are limits in terms of the mean morphine equivalents Um, we would like to avoid greater than 90 mean morphine equivalents a day um particularly for patients who have a non-malignant diagnosis. And in our practice and in many practices, we prescribe naloxone for all patients who are, who are at or above 50 mean morphine equivalents. The next slide just in, indicates to you that, you know, in terms of treating and monitoring patients, nothing is perfect. We don't know how many, how many physical therapy sessions are necessary for every chronic pain condition. We don't know how many injections. Um, There is a debate upon which medications are best in terms of oral oral medicines here. Uh, Surgery, not everybody is a candidate for surgery. Many people have surgery. Some people do well, some people don't do well. Um, People can be rescued with spinal cord stimulation or they can have spinal cord stimulation as an alternative to a open surgical procedure. And, and then again, targeted drug delivery, which is the implanted drug pump, traditionally was left to the very end. We have now moved spinal cord stimulation and targeted drug delivery um, in, in many cases above high-dose long-acting um, opioids for uh, for certain selected patients. I would certainly consider those uh, for my, my younger patients who have perhaps a spine-related disorder or a peripheral nerve injury before putting them on a particularly um, uh, sorry, a particularly addictive control substance. And we've talked about the prevention, uh, making sure to look at the person's workplace, monitoring their ergonomics and making recommendations, um, getting occupational assessments for them. And then if you look at the slide that describes the domains of pain this is why we want to make sure that we are following the five rights of pain because we owe it to our patients to try to enable them to return to a quality functional existence. We know that chronic pain, inadequately treated, unrecognized, and uh, and, and and not followed properly, can affect your physical functioning, reduce your ability to perform your, activity, your activities of daily living. You you can't work, you have difficulty doing the things that uh, that are recreational activities that give you pleasure. Um, 50% or greater pain patients are depressed. There's anxiety, there's anger, there's sleep disturbance, which makes your depression worse. You lose your, your self esteem, particularly if you can't work, you can't um, perform the recreational functions. Then you move into these socio economic consequences here where you miss work, there is disability, lost work days. All of the, all of these um, tie into the social consequences of depression, anxiety, sexual dysfunction, intimacy dysfunction, isolation here, affecting your family and your natural relationships. And so I think it is important that we we really recognize these in treating our patients and coming up with strategies to provide the right treatment at the right time.
0: So as you can tell that Dr. McDowell is very knowledgeable. So many of the things that he shared with us in his multiple times out, have, uh, have have ve- been very, very helpful. We're going to take a deeper dive into pain and the adverse drug events that can occur in the management uh, of care. Uh, what we wanted to do also, because we have a few minutes to do that, is to take you uh, to uh, and remind you of our opioids update. So now if we talk about the opioid crisis, uh, we'll go to that, and then we'll hear from Chief Adcox of MD Anderson. So now, regarding the opioid crisis. Hi, I'm Dr. Charles Denham. Today's briefing is regarding the opioid overdose crisis. We wanted to have two children because we wanted them to have each other. And now Matthew's an only child. Many stories have captured the headlines. However, the story of two best friends in high school dying the same night in a typical middle-class community drives home the impact on our nation's families. Back in 2017, the CDC found that more than 30,000 overdose deaths were related to fentanyl and other synthetic opioids in 2017, which was 22 times the number due to these drugs in 2002. Now, in 2023, the number is virtually ballistic with no end in sight. Addiction and unfettered availability of opioids is sparking a human forest fire. The CDC has described three waves of the epidemic of opioid overdose deaths. The first wave was the rise in prescription opioid deaths. The second wave was the rise in heroin overdose deaths. And the third wave has been the rise in synthetic opioid overdose deaths. This trend has gone ballistic with an explosion of illicit drug makers flooding the market and leveraging social media using what even the DEA calls the perfect drug distribution system.
3: On a Monday in May, 2021, the parents of a 15 year old high school freshman found their son in his bedroom in Idaho. He wasn't breathing. And despite starting CPR right away and immediately calling for help, their son died of a fentanyl overdose. His death was caused by one pill that he purchased on Snapchat. DEA has seized an unprecedented amount of fentanyl, more than 15,000 pounds this year alone. And that fentanyl is directly linked to the staggering amount of overdose deaths that we are seeing in our country. The amount of fentanyl that the DEA and our law enforcement partners have seized this year is enough to kill every single American. What is equally troubling is that the cartels have harnessed the perfect drug delivery tool, social media. Social media applications that are available on every single smartphone in the United States with a simple click, as easy as ordering a pizza online, Americans are buying what they think are real medicines. What they are getting is fake pills laced with deadly fentanyl. Fake pills that are killing Americans and leading to an untold number of overdoses. That's one of the last pictures of him. That's Mm -hmm. actually the shirt he died in. In
10: June of 2020, Amy Neville found her son Alexander dead in his bedroom.
3: I went in his room and he was blue. Just laying on his beanbag chair just like he'd gone to bed. You know, like he'd just fallen asleep there.
10: Alexander was 14 years old, just a child. Legos and Boy Scouts and... Teddy bear, I mean, and he died of fentanyl.
3: It just... Doesn't make sense, you know, sometimes it's... I wake up and it's hard to understand that this is our life.
10: But here we are. You lost him so young. Fentanyl, a highly toxic synthetic opioid, a drug like no other, is killing middle schoolers nationwide.
8: They should be watching cartoons and eating, uh, you know, bad cereal. They shouldn't be dropping dead from taking counterfeit pills.
10: Special agent Robert Murphy with the Drug Enforcement Administration says kids who think they're buying Xanax or Adderall or Oxycontin from their drug dealer, most of the time they're actually getting knockoffs, fake pills that are laced with fentanyl. And just a few milligrams of fentanyl
8: can be a fatal dose. We're seeing 40% of the pills that are being analyzed now have a potentially fatal dose of fentanyl. But back when we were kids,
10: if a middle schooler experimented, it didn't kill them.
8: We're d- dealing with a different threat, a drug threat. Uh, fentanyl has changed that game.
10: While still rare, drug deaths among children ages 10 to 14 more than tripled from 2019 to 2020, according to an analysis done for CNN by the CDC. Just in the past month, 12-year-old Delilah Medeiros in California died of fentanyl poisoning. And fentanyl killed a 13-year-old boy in Connecticut. Police say they recovered 40 bags of fentanyl from his school and about 100 bags from his bedroom. What did Alex think he was taking?
3: Oxycodone.
10: He thought he was taking legitimate prescriptions.
3: The pill that Alexander took, if it was a legitimate prescription pill, he'd still be here. But instead, that pill had enough fentanyl in it to kill at least four people.
10: Children have grown up thinking prescription pills are safe. Whatever it is, you've got pills for it. So we all trust the pills, especially when they're young looks legit. You didn't know to say to Alex one pill could kill you.
3: Exactly. We had no idea one pill would kill him. We had no idea about fentanyl. We talked to our kid. If talking to Alex is all it took, that kid would have lived forever. But we were not talking about the right thing because we didn't know about it.
10: And where did a 14 year old, a child, get illegal drugs? He told us he had connected with this dealer through Snapchat. Buying drugs on social media is so common that the DEA has worked to figure out which emojis teens use to make the purchases.
8: If you put a cookie, a rocket, and a candy bar together, it looks innocent. But what I just said is I just received a large shipment of highly potent Xanax bars.
10: So these two together mean Xanax?
8: Yep. And And this means? Bring it to school. Yep.
10: Snapchat says it uses tools to detect drug dealing activity and shut down dealers, and is bringing every resource to bear to fight the fentanyl epidemic on its app and across the tech industry. Before he died, Alexander had a bright future in front of him. He loved history, you know,
3: he had visions of one day being a director at the Smithsonian.
10: Now on a shelf in his bedroom is an urn with his ashes.
0: Oral prescription opioids have been confirmed as the gateway to heroin and synthetic opioids by many academic and industry experts. Those addicted to opioid painkillers are 40 times more likely to become addicted to heroin, much higher than those who are addicted to alcohol, marijuana, or even cocaine. Three out of four people get such opioids from a family member or friend, which is a very hard adoption route to address. Once the money runs out to buy such oral medications on the street or they are unavailable from other sources, people who would never consider using heroin are driven to it by their addiction and the low cost availability. It is one of the leading causes of preventable death that bystanders with very little training can address and save lives in those precious minutes before professional first responders arrive. The extremely high potency of fentanyl and the synthetic opioid carfentanil used by veterinarians for very large animals such as elephants stems from the extraordinary impact that very small volumes can have. The volume of a lethal dose of these substances is very small. Fentanyl can be 100 times the potency of morphine and carfentanil can be 10,000 times the potency of morphine. These substances lead to a staggering growth in opioid-related deaths. Study of the 2002 Moscow theater hostage crisis by British defense laboratories found the evidence of carfentanil and remifentanil in the clothing and urine from British survivors. The team concluded that an aerosol mist of carfentanil and remifentanil was used to subdue the Chechen hostage takers. Drug dealers are likely very unqualified to work with these synthetic opioids that are truly hazardous materials. Driven by the greed to maximize their profit from their street product, they mix them with heroin and risk lethal dosages. There are more and more news stories regarding the threat of synthetic opioids, putting professional first responders as well as bystanders at risk, thus creating the need for naloxone as a reversal agent to rescue them. Anyone near a crime scene or caring for an overdose victim may inhale these substances. Some believe they may even have a life-threatening absorption through the skin. The Justice Department announced the release of a new fentanyl safety video for first responders in September of 2018. It's entitled, Fentanyl, The Real Deal. The goal was to address the risk to first responders and reintroduce the guidelines that were released in 2017.
6: What we've seen in the last few years with fentanyl is a rise in the number of deaths associated with its use.
4: First responders are increasingly likely to encounter fentanyl in the line of duty. We want to make sure that they have the facts to keep them safe.
1: I got this on my hands.
0: The video highlights protective actions first responders should take to perform their daily activities safely when the presence of fentanyl is suspected, actions to take when exposure occurs, and steps to take when individuals exhibit signs of opioid intoxication.
4: If you think you've been exposed to a substance that could be fentanyl, you want to take that very seriously. You want to alert a supervisor or a buddy, tell them what you think is going on and the first step is to prevent any further contamination. The second step is to not touch your eyes, your nose, your mouth. Uh, That way you'll prevent further exposure. Uh, Third step is to simply wash the area with soap and water. And then finally, if you think your clothes or, or some of your protective materials have been exposed or contaminated, you want to remove those through your standard decontamination protocols. The threat of fentanyl is real but we're showing a multi-layered defense that will keep first responders safe while they do their job and keep the rest of us safe.
0: The video provides scientific and evidence-based recommendations to protect against exposure to fentanyl. It will be an essential training tool for first responders as they continue their fight on the front lines of their battle against the opioid crisis. Overdose deaths occur when the opioids suppress the automatic drive to breathe and victims die of oxygen starvation of their vital organs. The more potent the opioid, the more likely this will happen. The heart continues to beat until it can no longer live without vital oxygen. Naloxone, also sold under the name Narcan, competes with the opioids for the target receptors in the body and can revive a patient within seconds to minutes. The CDC has historically described a three-part strategy to reduce the heroin epidemic. First, to prevent people from starting heroin by reducing prescription opioid painkiller abuse. Second, to reduce heroin addiction by ensuring access to medication-assisted treatment, which combines medications with counseling and behavioral therapies. And third, by expanding the use of Naloxone as an opioid reversal agent that can save the life of overdose victims. The black market counterfeit prescription opioid crisis is exploding so rapidly that when we briefed our audiences in 2021, that four out of every 10 counterfeit pills seized by the DEA were laced with a lethal dose of fentanyl we were already behind. Now, six out of 10 pills seized are laced with enough fentanyl to kill an adult. In 2022, the DEA seized 50.6 million fake pills laced with fentanyl, more than double that seized in 2021. My recommendations to any organization or individual is to be prepared to know what to do when an opioid overdose occurs. When our leaders of the MedTech bystander care certificate program identified the leading causes of death for which bystander care training could be developed, care of opioid overdoses was high on the list. MedTech leverages four strategies, developing and sharing the latest bystander care methods, teaching through blended online and on-site learning, using immersive simulation methods for deliberate practice, and going to scale through local teams and networks. I will close with a few highlights of the knowledge and skills that we have learned are important the following is not a complete or thorough review and I recommend you take a full course from credentialed experts in your community. The first fun- So we'll stop there to finish on time for uh, those of you that are uh, watching uh, live and getting continuing medical education credits, uh, that are getting continuing medical education credits with us and continuing uh, uh, CEUs for nurses. However, those that are watching the long version, you'll be able to uh, pick and choose amongst the um, uh, amongst the uh, courses that, uh, that we have uh, available. We have uh, in our with our MedTAC bystander rescue care program, we've been doing quite a bit of work to uh, uh, help uh, people adjust to these issues. And uh, Chief Adcox has been uh, just a fantastic source of, uh, uh, of expertise. He is a, the chief security officer at M.D. Anderson Cancer Center and the, chief, Ma- the uh, chief of police of the University of Texas uh, Police Department at the center. And we asked him yesterday to make his comments regarding uh, law enforcement and the opioid crisis. And we'll finish on time. Bill, thank you for being such a champion of uh, threat safety science and really leading the way for us. You're uh, the chief security officer and uh, the chief of police taking care of a lot of people at uh, one of the largest medical centers or the largest medical center in the world. What's our state of the union today in law enforcement as it relates to opioids and and all of these challenges? Uh, 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 What's the state of the union today in law enforcement?
7: Well, opiate overdoses and all drug overdoses are really at an epidemic, and they've gone under the radar somewhat because of, uh, of the COVID uh, issues and so forth. Um, but the truth is, is that uh, uh, opiate overdoses are, are truly on the rise and have been skyrocketing, uh, probably in excess of 220 people a, a day die from opiate overdoses. And, and and if you look at it across the board, most of that, probably 88% of that's the synthetic opioids, like fentanyl and, and so forth. So it is an epidemic. It's something we all have to be aware of. And, and truly, uh, we have to put a lot of time and effort into prevention. So Bill, we understand that there
0: are a lot of vacancies in and a lot of our law enforcement agencies, uh, both in the rural communities, as well as in the big cities, are short staffed.
7: Is that still a problem? Well, absolutely. And, And it does not look like that that's going to improve anytime soon. I mean, police departments across the country at all levels are working really diligently to bring in additional candidates and bring in really good quality uh, employees, so that the people that are here to be guardians, to be servers, to be servant leaders. And it's been a difficult, it's really been a difficult uh, uh, time for us in the recruitment area.
0: Well, you've been a real champion of bystander rescue care and to have your officers really get trained and stop the bleed and know what to do with Narcan. And uh, what's your message to maybe our smaller communities and partnering with local law enforcement? We've got a lot of safety and quality officers that are in medical centers or even smaller hospitals where they're the biggest employer and they really could, as you've told us, uh, collaborate with, uh, with the uh, local law enforcement.
7: Well collaboration and partnerships are the only thing that really matter to make our community safe. You have to have friendships, relationships, and partnerships. Without that, we're not going to be successful. and And the police departments, uh, whether they're sheriffs or police or or even federal officers, they're one and with the community. You are the community. You're part of the community, and you have to work together. And it's critical, especially in the smaller areas and police departments with and with less and less resources that we get together and we partner. Uh, just for bystander care, we need to go out and make sure that everybody's trained and understanding. Make sure that they're carrying uh, Narcan, uh, at least two doses of Narcan. Uh, make sure that they that they have access to F- F- ephedrine uh, so that they can reverse a, a, an aphylactic attack. Make sure that they understand how to use an AED. They know CPR, they know stop the bleed, and they have stop the bleed kits work with the smaller rural hospitals so that they can they can assist in every way possible. We have to help one another. We must be one and the same. There's no way that it's, that there's this, there's the used to be something you'd hear frequently uh, across the board, they just called it, what they call the thin blue line. Well, that's just, that's a fallacy. There's no line, there's no demarcation. It's one community and we're all here together. And, and and if we work together and we partnership and we do the right things, then we can be safe and we can we can protect one another and we can help one another. Well, you know, you are uh, taking
0: care of, uh, MD Anderson's taking care of 100% are cancer patients, just a few benign diseases that where we can use oncologic uh, tools to help them. So the majority are cancer patients, many of them are in pain, and we have to commend you for really having your officers be truly first responders there. Tell us about the challenges that you face in the broader community of uh, the UT Health Science Center and taking care of a, a broader range of people that are not just cancer patients.
7: Well, we have a very diverse group of people that we are here to serve uh, in the in the uh, medical center. We, we take care of both the UT uh, Health Science Center as well as MD Anderson Cancer Center. So you really have the largest and most sophisticated cancer treatment center in the world. As at the same time, we have the largest mental health hospital in the state of Texas. And so it, it, we're, we're, we've got both, both sides of the spectrum in terms of people that are ill and, and people that need help. And with that comes family and friends that are pretty distraught. And then you have all of the other uh, categories of individuals that we're dealing with. So you could have hundreds of thousands of people in, in our area at any given time. So, yeah, it's very important that that our police officers and that our our security personnel and that all of our uh, administrative personnel are on the same page that we're integrated, we're we're actually uh, we're actually pursuing our combined protection model every day. Otherwise, we're going to have problems.
0: So we've done a, a number of programs on workplace violence, and now we're talking about the five rights of pain management today and the opioid crisis. Um, are you finding what so many other organizations are that uh, that addiction to opioids is a contributor to the workplace violence?
7: i ca- I can't say that that we're finding that uh, ourselves. Um, uh, we We have a very sophisticated workplace violence uh, uh, prevention program. uh we've kicked that off a, uh, a while back, and we're continuing to develop that. We're continuing to work through our metrics and so you know we don't have any of that data just yet Uh, i'm not saying that it won't we won't get there but at this point i will tell you that that we do have uh, a very sophisticated program right now we're at the beginning of it and it's really about education so once once we get out and do role-based education throughout both institutions and and particularly in the most high-risk areas at, at each institution we'll start gathering data we'll start getting better reporting because workplace violence right now is so underreported. It's really hard to make any hard um, interpretation of what's going on.
0: What's your message to other leaders at maybe smaller medical centers uh, to partner with the patient safety officers and and, and develop, develop the collaborations that you guys are so good
7: at? Well, the message is, especially when you're smaller, you, you can't have any, as much uh, uh, individual workers in in very specific areas you just can't have it you have to have people that have uh, that are generalists that have expertise and and abilities in many areas and you share that and at any given time you may be called upon to do something that's outside of what you're hired you might be a, a person in the maintenance area but that you're going to help with a security matter you might be a security person that's going to end up helping with uh, assisting with uh, uh, a patient so it, you have to be willing to step outside of your role and help somebody. Therefore, you need to learn, and you need to understand the bigger picture of what's going on around you.
0: Fantastic, Bill. Um, uh, final question: uh, what, what what do you believe boards of directors need to know about security, opioid overdoses, uh, this this whole this whole area? They're pretty insulated right now. They see the news about the common problems in the public, but they don't really know what they might be able to help us with at their institutions.
7: Well, they, what they need to know is is that the world has gotten very complicated, and and opiates are, are, are now flooding our communities, particularly synthetic opiates like fentanyl, and there's many drugs that are being laced with it, and it's, and it's a real epidemic. So they really need to understand that it's in our community, whether, whether we're seeing it firsthand or not, it's in our communities, and, and, and because it's in our communities, we all have to be ready to respond to that and I think that the boards need to know that the other thing the boards need to know is is that protecting any institution of any kind is 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 no longer a an individual section or division or or a particular department's responsibility it's going to be ineffective cyber is so technical now and 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 things have gotten so advanced and and so quite frankly you have to work together you have to have an integrated unified approach across the board to make every institution safe, and and so that's why I think it's very important that board of directors, you know, pretty much mandate that people are going to work together, that you just can't stay in your specialty and say, well, that's not my that's not my job or my responsibility. Well, everybody's safety is everybody's responsibility. So yes, you have mission first, but but each person's safety is is always, each and every day. It's about a safe, orderly, and friendly working environment. Well, I think you've really helped us
0: understand the layered approach. Uh, do you want to just tell us what a layered approach is to defense and, and safety?
7: Well, layered approach involves the different type of systems you have. So you got people, you have technology, you have leadership, uh, you have the different pieces and parts that come together and you layer them. So, so you might have a door lock, you might have an alarm, those are different layers. You might have camera systems, you might have security personnel, you have individual employees that have been trained, have been educated. They have an awareness of what's going on, and they know where to report it to. Uh, you have you have a, a different types of outreach that goes on out in the community that helps you with your security, also. So it's 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 kind of like Swiss cheese analogy, analogy. You know, one piece has holes, but you stack them together, and you, you get rid of the holes, and therefore you become a, a much stronger organization in terms of safety and wellness. Well, thank you, Bill. Thank you for being such a great
0: leader and role model for the rest of us. Well, thank you very much and and enjoy your day. So we're really appreciative of uh, Bill and his contribution to the work that we uh, are doing. Uh, For those that want to watch the full length crank, the zombie effect full program, you can go to our website and we'll have that link posted. Highly recommend it. This is really a dangerous thing that is happening in our um, environment, especially with these new added agents that are refractory to uh, Narcan. Uh, and uh, we, uh, for our extended session, you'll be able to hear more from Dr. Gregory Boats, uh, Vicki King, John Nance, and Randy Steiner. However, for today, uh, we will conclude today's uh, program with uh, our closing comments from Jennifer Dingman. And we thank uh, all of you for joining us. And for those that attend the, le- the more lengthy session and uh, review the transcripts, we're very grateful to have your contribution uh, we, uh, to, to our program and, and let us know what we can cover. We'll be covering more regarding the pain management, drug diversion, and the opioid crisis in the days ahead. Uh, Jenny, well, Jenny Dingman will close us now.
10: That was really great. I learned so much. I'm sure you all have too. Again, I urge you to please share the recording with your friends, families, and colleagues, and have a very happy and blessed Thanksgiving. God bless everyone.
0: So as we share with our teams that work in our MedTAC program, uh, we will fight the good fight. Uh, let's finish the race, and let's keep the faith. Uh, Everyone is a patient, and everyone can be a caregiver. Uh, We wish you the best uh, for the rest of November. We look forward to seeing you uh, in December. Thank you very much for your attendance.